Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, uh, welcome to another Word in Your Ear. Um, one of my favourite uh, Elton John stories is where he's uh, in a hotel. Was it in the Hyde Park, I think? Yeah, it was the Inn on the Park. The Inn on yeah. the Park, and it's the days when he was in the, in the, in the powerful grip of, of strong intoxicants. <laughs> and the weather was a bit breezy outside and a bit rainy, and he rang up his manager and he said, uh, can somebody do something about the weather? Can they change? I don't like the weather, please change yes, it. the wind. The wind, know, I yeah. don't like the wind. Tragically, that story is not in this great book. <laughs> because this, this is a real Alan Partridge intro, isn't it? Yeah, but plenty of oh, other tremendous stories yeah, yeah. are. <laughs> and to tell them, in fact, is the author, the wonderful Tom Doyle. Please welcome. So you presumably decided to concentrate on the 70s because that's when that's where the action is. Really. Yeah, I mean, I like decade-specific books, really, because it's good in terms of a narrative arc. You know, you can look at where your end point is in that particular year. And actually, with this and the McCartney one that I did, which was the 70s as well, the out points were 1981. Which is strange, you know, because actually nothing really happened that I could go, where's my out, where's my out? And it was always, you know, so you can stretch it a little bit. But yeah, no, you're right. Uh, it is that thing that obviously this was the, the decade that Elton became Elton. And also, obviously, it was the maximalist decade. And he kind of embodied that, really, you know, along with Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. But I mean, it was, uh, I suppose, I, uh, I focused on that uh, decade because I'd done this really long series of interviews with him about the 70s. And I mean, there was one in particular at his home in Holland Park where it was like three hours. Now, you can never get three hours with superstars. And he was so lucid and funny and the most enthusiastic swearer, right, ever. I mean, nobody says fuck with quite as much relish as Elton John. And other things, too. You know, it doesn't quite stop there as well, you know. So um, it was one of those things that I just, when I was writing up the pieces, and one of them was a cover feature, I just thought of no room for even the story about him meeting Elvis in 1976. 
Now, if you're having to leave out the, the yeah. story about meeting Elvis yeah, in 1976, you think, this might be a book, you know? So that's what happened. So what happened when he met Elvis in 1976? Well, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because, I mean, at that point, uh, Elton had been touring really hard, right, for, well, since 1970, like, almost endlessly, and making two albums a year because he was under this really tough contract, which is almost like a 60s contract, you know, two albums a year with DJM. And obviously Elvis was, you know, suffering a major decline at this point, but also so was Elton, right? Because he was, he was maybe about two or three years into his cocaine use at this point and stuff. And uh, Elton takes along his mum and they go to see him in Maryland, right? Uh, in Largo, Maryland. And they're left waiting. I mean, it is this thing. It's the, you know, it is an audience with the king. You can, you know, go back and meet Elvis. And really, at this point, it's Reg that's waiting to meet Elvis, you know, because he's shitting himself. And to make it even worse, they just leave him waiting and waiting and waiting. And he gets backstage, and he doesn't quite know what to say to him. This is because when, as soon as he sees the state that Elvis is in, and he's, he's not just, po- you know, he's gone to fat, basically. He's not like a chubby dude by this point. And he's, you know, Elton said that he looked into his eyes and there was just nothing there. And there was a sort of black dye, hair dye dip, dripping down his forehead and all this stuff, you know. And he said it was really sad. And the gig was sort of magical and still in a way, even though he was handing out these like nylon scarves, you know, to the fans and stuff like that. And, and Sheila, uh, Elton's mum, uh, turned around and said, he'll be dead in six months. And it was only a year. So, so she was right. So, I think it was actually a bit of a wake-up call for Elton. I was going to say, you think you'd yeah. see your own future there? Exactly. Yeah. Tell us about Sheila. Well, Sheila's interesting. This, actually. Is, her, this yeah. is his stepdad, this is isn't it? Yeah. Sheila was really. I mean, Elton's, you know, birth father, Stanley. Yeah, he'd been a musician himself, like a jazz musician and stuff, but he just didn't get reg or pop music or rock and roll. Just didn't get it at all. So he sort of frowned on all this stuff. And he was, you know, there was no love really between the pair of them. And uh, Sheila and Stanley split up. And Sheila was really encouraging of Elton in the early days, you know, bringing back home Elvis. He brought back at Heartbreak Hotel and Bill Haley and stuff like that, which kind of sparked Elton's interest in music to start off with. I think Sheila found it a wee bit hard, right, when he started, you know, when he turned into Elton and basically was quite so flamboyant. Mind you, she was rocking a bit of a cowboy bit there, didn't she? You know? So she, she was obviously, this is 71, so she's obviously stepping into this as well. I mean, she was completely brilliant in loads of ways for him. I mean, they've since fallen out, I think, yes. actually. Yeah, this, she's still know. with us. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, the, the thing that... Um, why have they fallen out? Do you know why? Uh, it's something to do with Elton's husband, I believe, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, that's if you believe what you read in the papers, that's what it is. Right? But the thing is, that's interesting about her, she was really encouraging of him, and when he um, came out as gay, no problem whatsoever. When he changed his name legally, right... From Reginald Dwight, right, to er- Elton Hercules John, she hit the roof. It was the Hercules. It was the Hercules. Really? That's probably what did yeah. it. Yeah, I think she's got a fair yeah. point, you see. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I make a serious point here. But parents, you know, they name their children. Yeah. yeah. Your children turning round and going, yeah. you know that name you gave me that you thought was good enough for me? Yeah. I'm sorry. So I hate it so much and have it legally changed. And, yeah. and this is Reg, isn't it? Yes. You know, and this is where, well, I, it's. 
when he was young and going to the Royal College of Music, wasn't it? Saturday yeah, I think it's yeah, a bit before that almost, actually. Yeah, and, but, um, and he used, his first experience performing was Reggie at the piano at the Northwood at the, at the Hills Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Was so he'd 15? be play, he may, in his mid-teens, yeah. I 15, think. 16, yeah. And, I mean, he would make quite a lot of money, actually, because apparently yeah. he was really good, right? So he would... He made be, 35 quid a week. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, know, what was the average wage? About sort of 15 or something? I mean, exactly, you know. Yeah. I still don't make 35 quid a week. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> no. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you should get up the Northwood Hills and bang out, you know, when the Saints go marching in. <laughs> might right. go be going a bit better for me, you know. So there are those two people, aren't there? There's Reg Dwight and there's... Elton Hercules John, and that kind of goes through the book, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I tried not to paint him as schizophrenic, obviously, in the book, but uh, I, it was one of these things that I, I felt in certain situations, it was Elton, right? It was the superstar, it was, you know, the flashy costumes, all this sort of stuff. And then Meek Reg is sort of keeps on cropping up. Yep. Like when he meets Elvis, it's also Reg who is sort of studying the charts, the way that he used to when he was a record obsessor. He, he had something incredible, like, uh, like 300 albums and 1,400 singles. Oh, yeah. Aged, again, about 16, which is astonishing. Absolutely. All cleaned All, yeah, yeah, and yeah. catalogued. Yeah, yeah, like a mini record library, yeah. And, I mean, he did that all the way through his stardom as well. You know, I mean, he ended yeah. up, you know... I mean, he still is. I mean, you know, there was a photograph of him yeah. maybe about a month ago buying hip-hop records in Portland. <laughs> so there you go. It's well, he used to do this thing, go to the Virgin Megastore yeah, or the Asian Virgin, with a chauffeur travelling behind him, and he used to buy three copies of everything that went in the chart. One for London, one for Windsor... One yeah. for Atlanta, I think. And so he must have had yeah. people just cataloguing his records yeah. back Totally. Then. And if he liked them, right, he would buy a box and then hand them out to his friends. Right, right. This right. is the whole thing, you know. Yeah. So he's, yeah, I mean, I, th- I suppose, I mean, I don't know if you guys are, but I mean, I'm still, you know, I mean, in the last week, I've probably spent 200 quid on records, you know. Obviously, Record Store Day is a right. good excuse for the vinyl obsessive, you know. But I'm still like that. And I got free no, records. It is, it's you know, a so disease. It's, it's, well, he, a can, disease. he can afford it. So, so, so he, he enters the music business as a, a, you know, as a piano player in bluesology. And, yep. you know, and, and he was also, he was very much the kind of jobbing piano player around town, wasn't he? You know, the people, oh. in, people in record companies, they knew him. Oh, that's Reg. Yeah. He, he just, and if you've got any free records, he'll take them off, you yes. know, and he'll know more about them than you than will. you will, yeah, But yeah, nobody yeah. ever thought that he was ever going to be a star at all. Well, it was because of the way he looked, you yes. know. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, they used to call him Billy Bunter, didn't they, you know, because it was, which oh, is really What did bad. Long John Baldry say about him? He described him as being a, 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 with a fat, fat arse. Yeah. Fat arse and myopic. myopic. <laughs> that's, that's right, yeah. So that's, that's, if that's what people are going around town saying about you, and you're, that, you're friends. And that's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it, yeah. yeah. I, know. <laughs> I love this picture of Denmark Street, by the way. This obviously is Margot and the Marvettes. I don't know if you can see this picture, but it's written on the back of their van. But what was the music industry like? Because he was writing songs, wasn't he? In fact, I wrote down some names of some of them because they were so extraordinary. Uh, what was it? There's something about um, when the first tear falls or something. What was it? Um, yeah, the first songs he wrote were, uh, um, yeah, A Dandelion Dies in the Wings, When the First Tear Shows, and Tartan Coloured Lady. Tartan Coloured Lady. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what made him realise that, that he needed the... a lyricist? He needed a lyricist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, the joke was Bernie yeah. did write Tartan Coloured Lady. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, he did, oh, did you know. 
I mean, the thing is, they, 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 it was just, yet again, quite a schizophrenic thing where they were writing these things that were sort of Beatlesque. Because in their minds, you know, a dandelion dies in the wind. That's Beatles, yeah. you're right. When, when the first tier shows and all this sort of That's stuff. Brilliant. It's, you know, <laughs> That's brilliantly telegraphed. One of these, man. Yeah. But, uh, and, you know, and these other ones were written for, you know, chart singers. They were trying to peddle them to chart singers, basically. And obviously, Lulu did one, you know, and they entered it for the uh, song for Europe and came sixth out of sixth, you know. Yeah. It was so, you know. So, but he starts to get, you know, when he goes, he changes his name to Elton John, you know, and, and gets a solo deal with J- DJM Records, you know, which is a little bit of a, a mixed blessing, wasn't it? <laughs> a, a deal with DJM Records. But he starts to get, he decides he, help, he ought to have an image, doesn't he, really? And, and then you get this. Yes. This kind of... Now, this is prototype Elton, I would say. Right? Yes. You know, definitely a work in progress. Uh, I described this in the book. I'm not, I wouldn't shoot, I mean, Elton would probably think this was funny himself, as a, a looking like a bank clerk who'd had a, a moment of 60s liberation wonder and swept drunkenly down Carnaby Street, you know, buying anything that would make yeah. him look less like a bank clerk, you know. Yeah. But this fur coat does look like it could have things living in it, doesn't it? You know? But he was a very complicated guy, wasn't he, at this period? Because he, 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 hadn't, come, he hadn't come out and he, he got... There's a girl called Linda that he, he decided he had to marry. This Isn't is that it. right? Which is an extraordinary story. I mean, yeah. actually, in the 80s, he did get married to somebody called Renata, didn't he? Well, More he did much later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he ended up... Him and Bernie and Linda, yeah. Reg's fiancé, or actually he was Elton by this point, they actually shared a basement flat just up the road from here in Furlong Fur- Road. Just on your right. way home, if you're going up to Highbury yeah. and Islington, you'll, you'll pass Furlong Road. Which yeah. is where the suicide attempt yeah. took place. Absolutely. Cause he cause he then know. regretted that he was going to get married to her and got himself yeah, into Yeah, I think he just realised, well, obviously he realised he was gay. Right? Yeah. Uh, and I think, by all accounts... It wasn't a, a partnership of equals, put it that way, right? Uh, but um, the suicide attempt ad was preposterous. I mean, because what he did was he uh, he opened the gas oven, put it on low, yeah. left the windows open. Yeah. It was a cry for help, really, you know, in the book, you know. I mean, I asked him, you know, I said, was that a serious suicide yeah. attempt? It went, mm, half and half. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, there's not much half of it, really, you know. Should be Regulo 6. Exactly, that's it, yeah. yeah. But uh, Bernie actually discovered them and pulled his head out the gas oven. And this becomes the song, Someone Saved My Life Tonight, you know, many years later. Yeah. But, um, but so let's is, talk about the relationship with Bernie Taupin yeah, because this is kind of unique in music business. Totally, yeah. History, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. you know. Because so Bernie Taupin sends in some lyrics to DJM and Elton John's sending in some music and somebody goes, put them together. Amazing, right? Because if you think about the Brill Building, they were all writing songs knee to knee. Yes. Lennon McCartney writing songs knee to knee. So this was the, the first sort of, uh, that I know of, I don't know if you guys, but I mean a remote writing relationship, right? So Benny sent all these lyrics in. Elton, being a master of the pop single, right, having studied it, we put these lyrics up, right, and in no more than 20 minutes, if it was taking him more than 20 minutes, he would stop. Like, this one's no good, right? And so before they'd actually met, they'd written 20 songs together, 20. which is incredible. You know? So I think it's do even you get more. the impression that Bernie kind of really cranks them out? So yeah. Bernie doesn't, yeah. doesn't sit there and have, have an idea germinating for weeks and then I've got it. Well, he just 
Exactly. You know, you see, first apply the seat of the trousers to the surface of the chair. Is the, <laughs> yeah. Get it, on with exactly, it. That's no, it, seriously, yeah. I think he writes yeah. Which like is a, a newspaper way. hack. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're not overthinking stuff, are you? No. You know, And the same with Elton as well. I mean, it's not this thing where you're Leonard Cohen, you know, writing Hallelujah, right, over the space of three years. Five years. Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. So, I mean, there's pluses and minuses to this, as we know, if we listen to some of the records, you yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, But I think it's even more bizarre than that, because I think what they do is they book, their manager once told me, they book a studio, so Elton's going to get to the studio at 11 o'clock, he hasn't got any lyrics and he hasn't got any songs. And when he gets out at 11 o'clock, uh, that, that's the point where Bernie used to fax through, in fact, yeah. the days of faxes, yeah. fax through the lyrics. He would then have a, a, a band booked in yeah. in an hour and a half's time to play the song that he hadn't yet written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's Sally. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And you say sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes no. it's Crocodile Rock, so yeah, terrific. Exactly. You know. But that's well, an amazing way of working. This is it, yeah. yeah. I, think... I must have told this story on, on a podcast in the past about Mark King from Level 42. That some, his manager once said to him, Why don't you write a song with Bernie Taupin? So they. You know, some contact was made or whatever. And uh, when Mark King got up in the morning, the facts had run out of paper. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just burning paper. <laughs> yeah. Songs about the old West. And, yeah, you know, exactly. This this yeah. You know, when I was a cowboy. It. Yes. <laughs> but it still, it still goes on. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, know, it's an incredibly unlikely relationship in the beginning. Yeah. And they've had their odd fallings out, haven't they? But they're well, back in. not that long, actually. No, it's yeah. really strange, you know, because they split up in 76, right? And obviously, Elton's a raging cokehead, right? But so is Bernie, right? And, but they're living in different places. You know, Bernie's in LA, Elton's in uh, England. And, I mean, Bernie in the book describes it as continental drift. He said, you know, we've done so much... Uh, and Captain Fantastic, the album, was kind of their apex, or he says blue moves, you know, but that's a patchy record and stuff like that as well. But yeah, I mean, they're only apart for about two years. Right. right? And then, you know, since then, I mean, they've written some, I mean, there's one point where I asked them, what was the worst record you made? Right? That's brave. Well, I mean, it's funny, man, you know, and it's just, uh, it was one of those in uh, Elton said, <laughs> leather jackets. He said, Gus Dudgeon did his best. He says, but you can't work with a loony. Right. Yeah. Just trying to imagine what the fax machine would do after two years' break. Just completely <laughs> mental. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, we're just... Gl- Dick James, we'll have to miss Dick, yeah, yeah, Dick James. Dick James, the, the man who famously sang the theme from Robin Hood on the TV. Yep, yeah, and, and I uh, think soundtrack. rather stitched old Elton up. Uh, well, he, he, he was a very unfortunate record deal, wasn't he? That he, that he yeah, signed very, absolutely. He didn't make any money out of those first records at all. Uh, well, John Reed came in and sorted that all out. Uh, right, you know, John right. Reed was, a, you know, I mean, quite a tenacious manager. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, Elton ended up with a great deal, you know, after that. But, uh, yeah, Dick James held on to the licensing for them in Europe, I think. But, I mean, the the royalty rates were much bettered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are two two sort of breakthrough moments. This is him playing the Troubadour, I think, in about 1970, where Neil Diamond turned up and introduced him. And is it the next one that when he played... um, at the Fillmore, yeah, the Fillmore East. This is fantastic. And you forget how fashionable he was. Yeah. Wasn't he? He was really hip. Bob Dylan went to see him and brought with him, what, Paul Simon and That's somebody right. yeah, else. That yeah, yeah, yeah. John Phillips, I think, of the members of the Puppets. And it was front page news in the Melody Maker. Yeah. <laughs> Dylan digs Elton. Well, know. You know, it's yeah. unimaginable, really. Isn't well, it? this must have been cred bestowing, you know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was not around at that time, you know. I mean, I was a nut. Oh, I was. Hey, yeah. Tom, I but yeah, I mean, what, how was Elton viewed? I mean, he was this viewed as no, cool, he, surely. He was, was, he? Was, he was kind of cool. It was no, oddly, it oddly enough, he got away with it, you know. Whereas now you look back at it and think, Reggie from Pinner. Yeah. 
suddenly goes into, into a room, comes out behind a curtain and has turned himself into a member of the band. Yeah. And he's singing songs about dirt farmers in Arkansas oh, or whatever. He was not. Uh, yeah. And we all just accepted it. The it's teenage amazing. me went to see him at Guildford Civic Hall with his trio playing Tumbleweed Connection. Amazing. And he did handstands on the, uh, on the keyboard. Okay. Kicked the piano stool away. Yeah. That, was his, that was his gimmick. That was it, exactly. Was yeah, which saved him sometimes I, over I, the I years. Saying, you know. I was saying this cover from Tumbleweed Connection is a classic giveaway because it's, it's styled in sepia, so it looks like, you know, looks like the closing sequences of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance That's Kid right. or something. But actually, if you look on there, it's advertising Cadbury's chocolate and Swan Vesta's matches. You know, I'd say it's the Bluebell Blue Bell Bell Railway, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> it's like we can't afford to take you to, you know, to Hollywood or anywhere like that. You know? They'd never been to America when they made that record. No. That was what it was. You know, it was the no, Americana record. So just a reminders of the song, some of the songs on that record. They'd never been to America. Was it Ballad of a Well-Known Gun? Yeah, exactly. Burn, Burn Down, down the Mission's the mission. on there. Burn yeah, Down yeah, the yeah. <laughs> you know. so Why were they so infatuated with America? It was the band. It was oh, absolutely the band. The band you know, they were completely Hellman, yeah. obsessed with the band, you know. And that record really is an homage to the band. And it actually, it's, it stands up. Uh, you know, I mean, it could have been, you know, because the band's third album wasn't that great. This is a better, you know, third band record, really. And I think they caught on to that very quickly. And uh, he was backstage at a gig in Philadelphia... And the band were fans by this point, and unbeknownst to him, were at the show and walked backstage, right? And Elton says in the book, I nearly fucking shit myself, you know? <laughs> because, I mean, the thing is, it's right? It's the way we were. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's lovely, lovely. I did check with these boys if you the could, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you could swear on these things. But um, it was one of those things that, you know, he had, I mean, Elton was such a music obsessive that he would work for free behind the counter of Musicland in Soho. You know, just to be beside records and to be when the imports yeah. were coming in and stuff like that. So when he met the band and almost had this mishap, 14, only 14 months before, he'd been behind the counter waiting for uh, the, their eponymous album to come in. You know? right. So, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a scale of how fast it happened for him. Yeah. So when it starts to happen, he, he starts being he's managed by John Reed. Yes. Um, who, as you say, was very forceful manager <laughs> um, but also this See on the left of this picture so they, I think in 1971 again I think they move in together don't they in, yeah. a, in a, a, an apartment off Edgware Road that's right yeah. but nobody thinks that they might be in a gay relationship do they well you know this Long lot... John Baldry possibly did but... <laughs> you know this I mean I suppose there were other more gay-looking men around at the time, really, weren't there? You know, pop star-wise, you know, you would have probably thought that Mark Bowling was gay, wouldn't you? You know, when he was married, you know, well, you Bali, all this it, sort of stuff. If you were watching you know. pop music in the early 70s, nobody was gay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they they said bisexual, didn't they? That, yeah. was, that suggested it was, a bit of a, it was a bit of a choice, you yeah. know what I mean? And um, I mean, you know, so, I mean, I suppose... Yeah, and also, I suppose, you know, a couple of guys sharing a flat, you know, I mean... People did, did that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, John Reed not conspicuously camp or whatever. Elton flamboyant, but as we say, a pop star, you know. But they did keep that relationship very much a furtive one for a long time. I mean, he comes out in 1976 when a Rolling Stone reporter dares to ask him the question. 
Does he properly come out then? Go on. He comes out as bisexual. Ah, there you go. There you go. Right, there you, you go. But I've done that. Yeah. Oh, well, after a few pints, we've all come out as bisexual. You know. Who has? <laughs> Around the time that Bowie said he was gay, and none of those things were true. I know. Bowie well, wasn't was gay. And exactly. Nor was Belton bisexual. So. <laughs> exactly. So Never none, believe we none read of the them papers. are telling yeah, the yeah, truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. The, oh yeah, that's the, the um, yeah. Go on. Well, I was going to we were we, we we've talked about this already. That, that's that's the the Reg Dwight versus Elton John. But I, I just wondered with the, the, the Elton Hercules John. I wonder what propelled him to do more and more preposterous things and to dress up in more and more insane costumes. And uh, you know, we, we're going to see one at the end. Do you know the Donald Duck picture, which is <laughs> just shocking. But you know. Well, what, I, what, I, what I, made him do? What it was? I, I, I think that uh, the one figure. You know, because you know, we're all, because everybody always tries to go and interview everybody, the bass player, the engineer, and a lot of the time, you know, you find that A, they can't remember anything, right? And B, it's really boring, right? Yeah. Oh, I remember, you know, you use the, you know, Yuri compressor on the bass and on that, right? you know, and you're thinking, yeah. The guy that I did track down for this one is Legs Larry Smith, right? Oh, yeah. Now, Legs Larry Smith is a hugely important figure at uh, Elton. I mean, already he was on the way of being flamboyant and stuff like that, but this sort of camp theatrical thing was pretty much down to Legs, right? And I went and uh, interviewed Legs in, in his local pub in Henley, and Legs is just superb, right? I mean, just superb. And he basically, so I mean, obviously, for people who don't know, right, that Legs was in the Bonzo Dog Doodah band uh, and appeared as this character, Mr. Wonderful, sort of clacking around in his tap shoes. And he was kind of a crap tap, tap dancer, really, you know. Uh, and Elton had got him a tap dance on I Think I'm Gonna Kill Myself, right? The track that's on Honky Chateau. And then just suddenly the idea was, why don't we get him on stage? Right, so obviously Legs loves this idea and gets this stupid, I mean, r ridiculous outfit, which I describe in full detail in the book. Or he does. I think I allow him right to describe it, you know. But it's kind of a crash helmet, and it's got like wedding cake figures glued to the top, and there's all this knitting, and then he's got doggy shit tattoos on his, you know, and he performs in front of the Queen Mother, right, the Royal Variety performance in this get-up, right. And the band hate this. They're like, who's this wanker? Right? <laughs> and Elton loves it. Right? And so, particularly in the American tour after Hon Honky Chateau, he just, Larry's whispering in his ear all the time, you know, go wilder, get bigger, get, you know, like this. And Elton at first is not quite sure about it, but he's carried away, swept away in this thing. And so he's a real key figure in this transformation, right, really, right. from Rage to Elton. Yeah. 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 But this is Purple Patch now. Mid, yeah. yeah, when are we talking about? 1974, five. Well, from about 72, it gets great, you know, yeah. yeah the record after mm. record after record. It's selling in just immense quantities, isn't totally. it? Totally, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's exploding. And it's selling on cassette, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, because and suddenly, you know, <laughs> suddenly the, the you know the market for uh, recorded music is just exploding, and he he's the Beatles, isn't he? Really, absolutely. I mean, he, particularly in America, he's the true successor of the Beatles in terms of sheer phenomenon. Right. What's the statistic? It's about like two percent of all records in the entire world in 1975. Right? One. In every 50 records, right, sold in the world. Anywhere was in the world was Elton Anywhere in the world was an Elton John album, yeah. Because his catalogue kept selling, didn't it? Because yeah. very often it was his old records that would catch up later on, wasn't it? Like, your song wasn't a hit until years after he'd done it. Totally, you know? you're right. Things like Candle in the Wind, you know, obviously. Absolutely. circumstances and so forth, but, you know. I mean, was... the thing is, it's one of those things that if you look at who sold what in the 70s, 
you know, obviously you've got your Led Zeppelin sell loads, you know, and, you know, Pink Floyd obviously sell, you know, whatever, 23, 25 million, you know, Dark Side of the Moon and stuff. Now, Elton, this contract that he was tied into, the two arms a year, it kind of served him well in the end because there was so much product out there that this is the reason in a way, because if you were an Elton John fan, suddenly you had tons of records you had to buy. So this obviously ramped the sales right up, you know. So, you know, I mean, I think Goodbye Yellowbrick Road is the biggest seller. And Captain Fantastic, you know, goes straight in at number one, which is, the, you know, the first time in American history that an album had done that. And know? then did it drop out quite quickly? No, I think it stayed up there for a while, actually. Because yeah. I'm a man who has the scars from having gone to Wembley Stadium in 1975. What are you there? <laughs> and, uh, a very, very hot day. My wife and I still got a picture at home of us baking on the, on the grass, you know, while Elton came on stage and played his entire new album yep. in order. And the song about suicide was the high point, really. <laughs> that, was, that was the single. That was the yeah, total. That was the single. You got yourselves to blame. No, well, that was a ballsy move, but I mean, possibly a ballsed up move, really, yeah. you know, because it was just... Um, was that the cocaine? Uh, well, it's, it smacks a hubris, really, doesn't it? You know, so, uh, yeah, because, I mean, the thing is, he'd invited the Beach Boys to play before them, and they were kind of on the way back up. You know, they, they were. Yeah. So the Beach Boys go on stage and do Help Me Ronda and California Girls <laughs> and so forth, and then here comes a bloke who's yeah. going to do 50 minutes of songs, songs you've never suicide. heard before. <laughs> yeah. And know. I mean, actually, out of all the Elton albums, that one is my favourite, right? Because I think right. it's, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think it's a, a really confident, fully realised record. It's quite Beatlesque in some ways, you know, in, in terms of its concept, because it's autobiographical Good record. Alan Aldridge stuff. cover, isn't it? Amazing cover. Yeah. Amazing cover, you know. But yeah, to play after Help Me Ronda, you know what I mean? Just, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he has got that kind of... Incredibly impetuous streak, hasn't it? Really, which is great in a way, isn't it? You know, because I suppose it yeah. is. He doesn't play safe at all, does no, he? No, no. And why? You know, the, the people who safe, play safe are people like Coldplay or whatever. You know, who's every bloody right no, it's, it's, the same. He, he, does, he sort of fascinates me because I saw him. I saw him recently. He was on Graham Norton. I saw that. Did you see it? Yeah. And yeah, and so there he is. How old is it? Is he now? Well, he's 70, 70, he just turned 70, okay, yeah. He's, he's Sir Elton Hercules John. You know, he's, <laughs> he's achieved everything he wanted in life, presumably. And you looked at him and you thought, you don't look comfortable, Elton. No, that's you right. You're slightly worried about being here. Yeah. In a way that, you yeah. know, he's... peers, Paul McCartney or whatever, wouldn't be worried at all. No. They know they're just lapping up the affection of the audience. He's yeah, never he, quite he happy quite in his own it. skin, is he? There's just something... Uh, uncom- yeah, I think it's that shyness has never gone away. See, here's a picture of Look how shy he is. You know. <laughs> so, it is bizarre, isn't it? Well, this is the schizophrenia. Tell the story of this concert. It's so amazing. This is Dodger Stadium in, what, 1975? And he That's broke right. the world record. I think it was 55,000 people each night, so he played to 110,000 people. Amazing. Yeah. It was the world record. Yeah. And, and then beforehand got into such a state about it. The, the, the kind of well, Reg Dwight the, the, coat. Yeah, I mean, the, this is rage very much, you know, because, I mean, Elton, by this point, has been touring, you know, two albums a year. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. This was the culmination of Elton John Week in Los Angeles. The yeah, the whole week. That's Elton right. John Week. On the radio, the telly. Everything, right. right? So it's his star unveils his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, all this sort of stuff. And they actually have to stop the traffic which is the first time in like 1,600 unveilings that they actually had to do this. So this shows you the sort of Beatlesque scale of the thing. 
Anyway, he's flown over. He's chartered a jet and flown over 130 of uh, his family, friends, and blah, 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 all over from Britain. And he's at his Benedict Canyon mansion one night, and his family are there, his granny Ivy's there, all this sort of stuff. He disappears, and he comes out and says, I've just taken 60 Valium pills. I'm going to be dead in an hour, and throws himself in the swimming pool. Enjoy. That's right. I know, yeah. Have fun, guys, know. you know. So, I mean, obviously, this is a really sad and dramatic point. I mean, I did talk to him about it, and he said... It was me being immature and dealing with the pressure in a preposterous way. Now, I mean, putting your head in an oven and turning it to low and leaving the windows open, right, is one kind of cry for help. But this is obviously a much more dramatic cry for help because, I mean, how are you going to know that taking 60 Valium... And obviously, look, he didn't take them and then just disappeared. He made a big show of it and stuff. But 60 Valium is 60 Valium, yeah. right? And if the, once that starts, you know, slowing down your nervous system and slowing down your breathing... And you this know, picture's taken 48 hours later, isn't that 48 right? 48 hours later. Yeah, right? so he's stomach-pumped. Really. He's not done hospital. anything quietly in his life. No, he? he's not one for has underthinking he? or underdoing. You don't, you don't you find know? out years later what Elton John has been doing quietly, do <laughs> no, you? you know, he's a train spotter or anything like that. You don't find that out. No. It's, it's extravagant. Yeah. Huge gestures. Grand gestures. To a company, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way the piano has got a carpet on. It's carpeted uh, piano. Yeah, well, you've got them. It's so 70s. It's got to take a walk along the piano at some point. Yeah. This isn't a ter- terribly clever self-explanatory slide, but this is really, we want to get onto the subject of just his expenditure. This is just one of the many catalogues of auctions he's done at Sotheby's. And Princess Margaret gave him, was it two stuffed leopards or something? That's right, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Pretty, I love it. And then there's this moment where he, he, he gave his, uh, his secretary at the, uh, the record company a $23,000 raccoon coat. He gave El, uh, Rod Stewart a, a Rembrandt sketch for the Adoration of the Shepherds. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure that was a hugely appreciated. Yeah, yeah, we'd love that. <laughs> well, Rob would have stubbed out, shot out a couple Rod's, of lines Rod's on the Rembrandt well here. He would have eaten fish and chips out of no. it, probably. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just give us some idea of the level of expenditure. I mean, he had something like £60,000 worth of luggage, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was the thing. I mean, I suppose a compulsive guy, you know, an excessive guy, I mean, if it's not records, it's cocaine, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, the spending probably started... He had a break in 1973, but only for about three, four weeks. And he was in Los Angeles, and this is when he met Groucho and all this sort of stuff. But this is when he really started spending. I mean, he was spending like a pool's winner, basically, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, when he flew back to uh, England, I mean, it was like 37 suitcases worth of shit. Like jewellery and records and, you know, all this stuff that really... You wonder what the hole is that you're trying to fill with that amount of consumerism. I suppose it's just... And he laughs about it and he just says, well, you know, I could, you know, walk out and, you know, in front of a bus tomorrow. <laughs> so he didn't see it as being vulgar. He was just like, well, I'm earning it. I'll spend it. But then there came a point when he wanted to purge. Uh, is this in the you know, late 80s? This he, is it, yeah. yeah. And, it, and really, I mean, I suppose his house at this point was obviously looking like an Aladdin's cave yeah. of expensive shit, right? So uh, I think in the mood to purge, he decided to get rid of it. Now, the thing is, it's interesting because it, it raised millions, right? And both my UK editor and my US editor, right, both said, which charity did this 
Elton John, I think, was <laughs> exactly, a charity. Yeah. Later on, he did give it to charity. Well, you know, when he a, sold stuff later. But yeah, that sale he didn't. That's, that sale he didn't. I mean, obviously, he's done a lot for charity, you know. Does like to talk oh, about does, it sometimes. No, yeah, he, yeah, does, he does. Because uh, in that sale in the late 80s, uh, he, he has to have somebody calls the house because there's a couple of priceless crystal containers that are known to be in the house that need to be added to the Sotheby's because they're in the catalogue. And where are they? Oh, I'm using them as a soap dish. These things are just balancing on the side of the bath. But isn't With a palm that olive in them. You know? yeah. I mean, look, if he didn't do a lot for charity, and you know, obviously the Elton Aids Foundation and stuff like that, you know, I mean, he's done amazing things there. Then it would be vulgar, and you just think, what a twat, you know. But the fact that it's balanced out, and you just think, here's a guy really, really enjoying his fame and money. And here's a guy not enjoying his fame and money. No. And, and that, they, yeah. When, when was this? This was 75 again, actually, yeah. And what's happened the night before this? This is at Caribou Ranch in, uh, in the Rockies, Colorado Rockies. And, you know, they, they, they always liked a sort of hideaway studio base. So the Chateau de Hourouville in uh, France, they made a lot of records there. This was the period when he was making, uh, well, he just made Captain Fantastic there. Lennon used to visit him up here. Anyway, the, the, the day after, uh, this is the day after he performed supporting, or at least appearing with the Stones on stage at the Hughes Stadium in Colorado. And it didn't go very well. Because, I mean... He landed in a helicopter or something. Well, he landed in a yeah. helicopter behind the stage and pissed the stones off straight away because they saw it as being some showboating stunt. Oh, here comes fucking Reggie's helicopter or whatever, right? <laughs> I mean, I think it really was that, right? Yeah. And uh, he gets backstage and he's really nervous. You know, it's the stones, he's a big fan, all this sort of stuff. And they say, you know, which of our tunes do you know? And he says, well, I know Honky Tonk Women. And they say, well, we're fucking starting with that. And so... Well, okay, I'll come up, you know, I'll start with you, right? So he kind of, after he's played Honky Tonk Women, gets up off the stage, sort of awkwardly, blah, blah, blah. This is Gordon Hem, by the way, right? And uh, then Billy Preston, who's their keyboard player at that point, sends a message through one of the roadies and says, what's he doing there? You know, like getting back up on the stage, you know? So he thinks he can get there and get back up and skulk, you know, and just boogie-woogie at jewel style, you know, in the shadows. Jagger starts getting really pissed off about this right? and introduces the band at one point and you can hear this right on the thing like you can hear the venom in his voice and he goes and on the piano up to now we've had Reg from Watford Jagger said we should have thrown him off the stage really you know? so, let, let, just, just, just for, let's be clear cause it, it, it was Sharon and Phyllis wasn't it these were the kind of yeah and who was who that was uh, that was him and Rod's so he was Sharon. Yeah, and Phyllis. Uh, no, that was Sharon. Sharon and Phyllis. Yeah, Sharon yeah. and Phyllis. Okay. I'm not sure which one was which, actually. You oh, know, okay. That's a very good point. I, I, I thought, maybe that, they I were thought there were a series of girls' names for a, a load of they those guys. They were maybe interchangeable. At, at, at that time. This, this is just, there's a lovely bit in there. Well, not a lovely bit. There's a bit where you talk about the old John Updike quote of celebrity is a mask that eats its own face. Yeah. And this is happening. He is kind of melting down in a kind of a orgy of drugs. At the time that punk rock happens, but in fact he's not that affected by it. I mean, the night the, the Sex Pistols were playing on the HMS Belfast, whatever it is, I think he was playing a gala <laughs> event for, for, the for the Queen Mother, the, for the Queen, the Queen, the Queen. Yeah. So it was so a it could yeah, be more yeah. ridiculous. No, I mean it's like the distance between them in terms of, you know, ethic, right? You yeah. know, him and the punk seems vast, but at the same time. 
he really was a punk, wasn't he? You know, when yeah. he was younger, and not in terms of the music, but in terms of the way he looked. You know, and I mean, there's a lot of stories about. I mean, maybe this is the most punk look, right? Yeah. But you know, he obviously dyed his hair. You know, you know all these crazy colours and stuff like that. And there was one point in the book where they fly to, and this must be seventy two, seventy three. They fly to Australia, right? And the authorities there just see them as like a complete menace. He has all these badges on his. Um, they just say crap like bitch, 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 and all this sort of stuff. But he has to pull band aids out and put them over them, right, before they'll let them in the country, right? So, I mean, he could completely identify with the punks. You know, so he's, you know, at one point he's, he's like, well, look what the state they're in, but he could identify with them. But then, you know, he turned 30 in 1977, and at a time when it wasn't seen viable to have a long-term career in rock and roll. So, I mean, at 30, I think, you felt as if you were finished, and Johnny Rotten and all that coming along, you just think, I'm definitely finished here, you know? So I think it was a tough time, 77, 78. And he tried to do things to keep up with um, the new waivers. Like he made that single, Eagle. Do you remember that one, right? Yeah, which is him trying to do a sort of Elvis Costello thing, but it sounds a bit more Queen. And it's got a really awful video where it just, you know, there's like, like this Olympian burning torch and the words Elton and Eagle. And you just think, wouldn't you, somebody had a word? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you probably think at that point, Elton, get your duck costume on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. that there is... can save you. I <laughs> love this picture, it's fantastic. I saw him once do a benefit at Watford Football Club where he was dressed as a hornet, wasn't he? Was yeah. He... yeah, 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 totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, he liked it. I mean, he'd... first time he met Sting, he was dressed as Minnie Mouse. And he says that there's a picture can't of... can't be Rudolph. comfortable, can it? You know... He couldn't get into this, actually, and he was quite pissed at this gig as well. He'd been uh, nicking the whiskey, and this was a big gig. This was in front of half a million people in Central Park. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this was it. He went off for the encore, and because he'd been uh, nicking the whiskeys, he couldn't quite remember which was a leg hole and which was an arm hole, so it, it took him a while so to get back on stage with this one, yeah. He's got like a flipper coming out. So what's the... We were talking earlier about the fact that there is no story too ludicrous to be... to not to be attached to the name of Elton John, you know what I mean? Any myth will just... It'll, somebody will say, it happened to Elton John, yeah. don't they? You know, your, your famous one about the parachute. Oh, well, the parachute... Well, that's... I, I put and that you to you asked him interview. about this, Yeah, no, this is a story that I interviewed him in Las Vegas and when he was doing whatever that thing. He was doing Caesar's Palace every yeah, night. Yeah, the Red Piano, was it? The Red yeah, Piano, so I'm on yeah. the 13th floor, massive penthouse suite, interviewing Elvin, uh, Elton. And he's... Actually, he's a brilliant interview. Yeah. Because he's, you know, he's had uh, drug and, and alcohol problems and, and, and part of the therapy is transparency. You've got to be Talk. honest. Whatever, whatever you ask, yeah. you ask him, he's yeah. going to tell you the truth. And um, although he was slightly cagey about this one. No, the story was that in, in the mid-70s, you know, at the absolute height of his pomp, he had some stately home out in the country somewhere, didn't he? And everyone was there, all his mates, you know, bachelor chums, you know, all having a delicious dinner. And uh, they got to the stage, they had their huge balloon glasses of brandy, and he, suddenly they were summoned out, a lovely sort of midsummer's night, still light, 
you know, out onto this marvellous perfumed lawn for breeze, yes, gentle breeze. And an aeroplane came into view, and very slowly little dots appeared out the aeroplane. No one had any idea what little it was. Flowers, little flowers. Little tiny like, little flowers. And then parachutes opened up behind them. So there were clearly men on parachutes. And the nearer they got to the ground, the more they were obviously men with no clothes on, on parachutes. And uh, eventually they stumbled onto the, onto the lawn, just managed to unstrap their harnesses well they were pursued into the <laughs> rhododendron bushes by uh, enthusiastic revelers you know and uh, anyway, so I, I i told him that story pretty much as i've told it to you actually yeah and uh, he gave me this kind of um you know this kind of uh, no that's not true at all while nodding you know so i thought this is so that's classic. good enough for us good Elton. enough for me i'm gonna publish it should be in your book yeah, hallelujah it's, a, it's raining hallelujah man. yeah it's, it's raining man. <laughs> no, he is a he is a person, you know. That is there just a favourite story you've got about it? The one. Uh, there's some. There's so many actually. There's one great one in the book about uh, he's sitting in the garden of his Wentworth bungalow, right, with Stanley Baxter, right, oh. one day, right, uh, who's a good pal of his, right, and up uh, coming up into <laughs> drive, right, and apparently Stanley Baxter just jaw dropped is Catherine Hepburn on a bike. <laughs> Oh, right. oh, very right, good. So this is it, right? Now, Catherine Hepburn was uh, in town and was staying with the Forbeses, right? So Brian Forbes and Nanette Newman, who'd lived nearby, who didn't have a pool, but Elton had a pool. And he'd said to them, oh, well, you know, if she wants to use the pool, so unannounced, she cycles up there, blah, blah, blah. Is she wearing a bathing costume with a towel over her shoulder? Well, this is it. You've got to wonder, haven't you, you know? <laughs> with the, uh, she was an enthusiastic swimmer at 66, I think right, she was, right. you know? But anyway, she, uh, he apologises and said, oh, listen, sorry, I'm, I'm really sorry, there's a dead frog in there, you know? He said, I've, you know, I hate frogs, I didn't want to fish it out, you know? So she dives in, right? As Stanley Baxter is a gog, right? And fishes out this dead frog, you know? And they said, how the fuck could you do that? Character, darling, character. Very oh, good. Yeah. Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> okay. Well, these, these and many other stories are, are in Tom's fantastic book, about Elton John in the 1970s, which he'd be more than happy to sign a copy for you if, if you're buying one from, from the excellent Martin from, uh, from Waterstones, who's, who's out there. Uh, but we'll be back in, a, in about five, ten minutes uh, with Barry McElhenney and Miranda Sawyer to talk about Smash Hits. But meanwhile, will you please say thank you uh, to our first guest this evening, Tom Doyle. Thanks, folks. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.